Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. We're going to hit the ground running, so if you don't mind, just go ahead and swipe, tap, otherwise navigate uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14 this morning. While you're tapping in that direction, uh, just a little bit of context for us this morning. This passage is the closing of Paul's initial argument against the philosophers and rhetoricians that held the Corinthian church captive with their plausible arguments and lofty speech. The church had been long divided along these party lines with some following Paul, some followed Cephas, that is Peter, some followed Apollos, and some others even followed Christ to the exclusion of his apostles. In this book so far, Paul has commended all godly teachers to the Corinthians. He says, look, if they are following Christ, they are for your good. Don't draw lines between them as if they were doing different things. They were, he reminds them that Christ's faithful ministers are not divided, but one, as the body of Christ is one. And so he says, look, don't divide along the lines of who you want to follow. Don't divide along whether people follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas. No, as they follow Christ, follow them all. Use them all for your good. They're your servants. They are serving the body of Christ. Yet the way of life the Corinthians had been encouraged to adopt by some of their teachers was not commensurate with the flavor of the gospel that Paul preached, in fact, the only gospel. Divided, they pursued these worldly success metrics and condemned Paul because they found him lacking in that area. Does that sound familiar? If you don't drive this kind of car, if you don't live up to this sort of standard, then obviously God isn't blessing you. No, we know that's a lie. And so Paul is coming against these teachers who had come into Corinth and who were deceiving people by their plausible arguments. And some of them were even maybe helpful in some ways, but Paul's going to get at the heart of the matter here today. And so in, these, uh, in the verses just prior to the ones we're about to read, Paul talks about the character of the apostles and true ministers of the gospel He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Far from the behavior of the worldly divided church in Corinth, faithful ministers like Paul were willing to undergo suffering for the sake of the gospel, which was and still is foolishness to the world, isn't it? The way that we live our lives, if we are living in accordance with the scriptures, is foolishness to the world. They think, why are you living like this? You could be getting ahead in so many different ways. You could be manipulating the people around you to climb the ladder. Why aren't you doing all these normal things? We say, no, we, we follow Christ, and that's not the way of Christ. Christ was a servant. He let himself be abased for our sakes. And so we follow the same pattern, or at least should. And so Paul comes against these 
teachers who had either misled or were being ineffective in the ministry. And these teachers had obviously sort of failed the Corinthians and failed to build them up in Christ. In fact, he says that these people were still infants in Christ. He was like, what I gave you is all, is all you have still. You haven't been built up. You haven't been taught what it means to live with Christ. All you have is the gospel, and you aren't really applying it to the rest of your lives. What's going on? And these people were led to division along these party lines, and in fact, we'll come to see that they, they not only divided, but they were allowing wanton sin in their ranks. They were saying, okay, like we'll kind of allow anything. Sound familiar? So many churches today just don't want to follow what God says. They, they want to make excuses. So many Christians today they want to make excuses. This is why I don't live in accordance with the Scriptures, but Paul is saying, no, no, no. This is, there is one way. There is one way, and that is the way of Christ. And so stand with me as the, in, this morning as we uh, continue to read in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. We're going to finish out the chapter. Uh, if you're new here today uh, and, and you're wondering why in the world am I having you stand, this is out of respect for God's Word. The stuff that I say, fallible. You should double-check it with Scripture. I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a perfect teacher. But the Word of God is a perfect teacher. God spoke these words to us through these authors, that we might be bettered for it. And so we stand to, to just remember the respect and the honor that is due to God's Word. So this morning, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, it says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not, do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with a spirit of love, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to see the value of the spiritual parents in our lives. Help us to see how you've placed people around us who are not merely talking heads, but who exemplify what it means to live in accordance with your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would lead more people like this into our lives, that, Lord, we might not have to subsist on the, the writings of people that we cannot know, but, Lord, that we might also get the flavor of a life lived unto you that we might accept and cherish those ancient teachings, and yet, Lord God, also see it lived out in those around us. Lord, we thank you for this. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us also to understand that your kingdom does not consist in mere talk. 
Lord, while we do use words to convey the gospel, that, Lord, truly, it is no gospel that has no effect. But, Lord, your, your gospel, your kingdom is power. And I pray, Lord God, that you would change us by that power. That, Lord, we might submit to you and live in accordance with your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. I don't know about y'all, but uh, the number of people speaking loudly into our lives these days seems a little overwhelming. Do you feel that? Every time that you get on social media, you scroll through a news feed, whatever it is, somebody's trying to tell you what to do, how to think, how to live your life. There's a lot of people talking these days. And even in the church, there are just so many voices so many people that would say, you know, this, this is the right way. No, this is the right way. And how do we, how do we deal with all of that? Well, I'm not going to present to you some sort of surefire way to parse through all the noise of modern society. But I hope today that I'll, I'll be able to present to you the importance of those who are close to us, those whom God has placed in our lives so that we can rub shoulders with them, so that we can get to know them, so that we can understand not only who they are, but why they live the way they live. And these are hopefully mature people in Christ, and we can go, you know what? If I just imitated this person, even in this area of their life, maybe not in all areas, but in this one area of their life, if I imitated them a little bit more, I might look more like Jesus, because the way they do it, it looks like Jesus. It smells like Jesus. It tastes like Jesus. Hoping that amongst all of the, the, the disembodied voices of this world that I can point you to a few people in your lives that exemplify Christian maturity and that you might be able to look at them and say, you know what, I, I want to live my life like that. You can adopt some of their practices. So look, if you, if you feel like you're having too many people speaking at once uh, and you think this is just a modern problem, you'd be wrong. In fact, Paul says that the Corinthians had countless guides. This word it simply means the largest number possible. <laughs> there's, there's a literal meaning to it, but usually in the, in the course of the, of the Greek, it's simply the biggest number possible, countless. He says you have countless guides, but these guides here are a little different than faithful teachers. And I think there is some juxtaposition being made here between faithful teachers and these guides. In fact, I would argue that guide here in the ESV is better translated pedagogues, guardians, or perhaps tutors. I'll use these words sort of interchangeably. If you're not familiar with the English word pedagogue, it just means teacher. Um, but these people in the first century were often slaves who were instructed to go and help young boys as they came out of sort of childhood and transitioned into manhood. They would teach them the ways of the world. They would give them certain skills. These guides or tutors would play a role in helping those, those children to be disciplined, and yet they were hired hands. 
we too have countless guides in Christ. If you're not sure, go to Instagram or TikTok, whatever is your favorite place, and make a post asking people what decision you should make for some important area of your life. I guarantee you that more than a few people will chime in, more than happy to give you advice on exactly how you should live your life. You have countless guides. Some of those guides may give good advice. Uh, Others may lead you astray. But everyone seems happy to offer an opinion these days, don't they? The problem is that there's often no way to assess their guidance. So these people come and they say, you should do this. They might say, because X, Y, and Z. They might provide a plausible argument. But they're going to give you this sort of one-off answer And you can't really assess whether that's something they live themselves. You can't see the effects of that decision in their lives. It's hard. The question is, like, especially when we're talking about something that's deeply related to our faith, does that other person's life look, taste, and smell like Jesus or not? If it doesn't, then maybe I shouldn't be listening to their advice too much, should I? They're not being faithful to what they profess. Now, insofar as you can see these other people's lives and works, then perhaps you can affirm their walk with Christ, and so perhaps you could take their advice to heart. Now, I'm not calling you here to be jaded, right? There's all sorts of great advice out there, and maybe you can't see into every every individual person's life. But I am calling you to be cautious this morning. Do not be deceived. You have countless tutors, but few fathers. We have far too many disembodied voices that speak far too loudly into our lives, and they often cause us to relegate those closest to us in whom we can really see Christ moving to a place that's sort of over on a shelf because we want to say, well, I take the advice of R.C. Sproul, or I take the advice of John MacArthur, or I take the advice of this Christian teacher or that one, or John Calvin or John Owen, all the Johns, right? Lots of Johns. And we, we start taking these different things and we forget, we relegate the spiritual fathers, the spiritual mothers in our lives over here on the shelf. And we miss out on something that's a relationship that's very high fidelity, Whereas we can get snapshots of good teaching from these other people. I'm not denigrating anyone on that list there, by the way. But if we don't look at the people around us who have provided spiritual guidance and we can see that they live out the way that they profess to believe, we relegate them, we're missing out, aren't we? I know this is true, like, there, there have been times in my life where I've subsisted on the writings of ancient authors. I forgot that people around me could actually show me Christ, thought that these giants in the faith could show me everything I needed to know. I missed out on those who are around me and could show me what it means to live a Christian life right here and right now. Don't ignore the people that God has placed in your lives to love you, to provide an example to you. See, tutors can be good, 
But spiritual parents can provide an education that is exceeding by degrees of magnitude the fidelity of your favorite celebrity pastor or ancient author. All of these things are good. I'm not saying that any particular area here is, is good or bad. I'm simply saying that if you look to those faithful teachers in Christ from ancient times, don't ignore the people in your life right now. And so in these verses, Paul has realized that, that he has become ignored for the sake of these talking heads in the Corinthian church. He was their spiritual father. He provided to them an example. He taught them with his own mouth, and he showed them with his own life what it meant to pursue Christ. And yet these other people had come in who had at least begun to preach and teach things that they didn't live out and perhaps even led them astray. He says in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A tutor or a guide teaches because he is paid to teach or because that's his job. A father teaches because he loves his child, doesn't he? A tutor teaches a lesson and goes and lives however he wants. A father teaches a lesson and then shows his child how it plays out in everyday life. Additionally, Paul knew the Corinthians. He had lived with them. He labored with them. He cared for them deeply and personally. He didn't love them with the general love with which he loved the whole church. No, he loved them with a particular love because he was the one through whom God had brought them to faith. Not only that, he had taught them, not simply as a tutor, but as a father teaches his children. He brought them alongside him, and he showed them what it meant to live in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in the, in the first part of this, he talks about the quality of the, of the apostles. He, he says that, all these things, he says, we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And then he proceeds to say, I don't write these things to make you feel ashamed. And it's like, wow, that's not supposed to make people feel ashamed. But he was trying to say, you've been deceived. You've, you've lost the point. And I'm coming to you as your spiritual father seeking to redirect and correct, not in a sense of trying to shame you or abase you, not trying to make your self-esteem lower than it ought to be, but you've become puffed up and I need you to see yourself more levelly. You've become kings, he says. Well, the apostles are the scum of the world. There's something wrong here, he's saying. And so when he spoke to them, and even when he admonished them, he spoke with a particular and peculiar love for them. Their tutors might have been happy to tell them what to do or how to live or what to think, but he disciplined them as a father disciplines his children for their good. Now, I want to admit here that I take a different view of this passage than most of the commentaries that I read, and so I'm going to go ahead and put that out here. I don't believe that Paul is uh, mentioning him becoming their father in Christ as though he were their only father in Christ. 
or that even conversion is the only means by which someone becomes a spiritual parent to another person. Many commentators do say that this passage implies that one should have a special respect for the person who leads them to Christ, and that that special kind of respect that you have for that person as your spiritual parent cannot be replicated. But note that Paul says you do not have many fathers, rather than explicitly saying you only have one father. Like, and by the way, when we talk about father here, he's not, saying, he's not contradicting Jesus when Jesus says, call no man father. He's simply saying that, he's saying, I have a particular love for you. I have a particular love for you. And that's really the point. I think the nature of spiritual parenthood here is not the way in which he became their spiritual father, which was by preaching the gospel and their conversion. And I don't think that there's a call to uniqueness here. I think that he's getting at the deep personal care for their spiritual well-being and him providing an example to them what it means to walk with Jesus. And like the Corinthians, I think this is an area where we seriously lack these days. We lack people who actually live in harmony with their convictions. Lots of people want to give you advice. Do they live it? We lack people who are willing to take the risk of caring deeply for another person for those who could be their children in the faith. We lack people who have the boldness to invite people into their lives that they could see some of the, some of the junk that happens there. They're, they lack the boldness to say, no, come and follow me as I follow Christ and where you see errors, help me, but I want, to provide an, I want to provide a high fidelity that's like, like hi-fi, right? Like hi-fi stereo, that's the way I mean that. Hi-fi sort of relationship with you so that you can see how I follow Jesus. We have lots of people who know the right words to say. Lots of people who know the right theological arguments to make. They know how to beat you at every turn with compelling arguments for their position but we don't have many people who are willing to open their lives and ask others to imitate them as they imitate Christ. Look, you don't have to be a theological elite in order to be a spiritual parent to someone. It just means taking a true interest in another person and saying, I want to be there for your spiritual good. Come follow me as I follow Christ. What prevents you this morning from being a spiritual parent to someone? What prevents you? Is it a lack of knowledge? Go to the, go to the scriptures. Open your Bible. Don't use that as an excuse. God has given you his entire word for your good. And guess what? Lots of people out there, as I said, lots of tutors, and they can be good. Go to those ancient writers. Seek to learn. Look around to other people. If you're like, I don't know how I could be a spiritual parent. I, had, I never had spiritual parents. I had never had anyone who really led me in Christ, who opened their lives to me so that I could live like they live. Look around. There are people here today who would be that for you. Is it a lack of obedience that prevents you from being a spiritual parent? Repent and believe. 
maybe the other way around, believe and repent. Trust in God's promises. Know that you can be forgiven. And maybe that's the example that you provide to these people around you who would be your spiritual children. Maybe just going, hey, like I was living in disobedience by not walking with Christ in this way. You know what what that makes for? A good spiritual parent. Being honest with those spiritual children, with your failures and how Jesus saved you. I'm encouraging you today to become spiritual parents to others. Whether by teaching them the gospel for the first time, as Paul did. He came out and he preached the gospel. And then he said, come with me, look at my life, and see what it means now that you believe. Or perhaps find others who are already Christians, who need that spiritual mentorship. Become spiritual parents to them. Go to them and look and, and say, you know what? I'm going to take a particular interest in this person. I'm going to try to guide them, ask them to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul continues in verse 16. He says, I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. A few weeks uh, or so ago, I started reading a book uh, entitled The Good Life, Lessons Learned from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Quite an interesting book. I like to read broadly, as you know. Um, I think this is one of the best sellers during the pandemic, like 2021. They came out with this because people were trying to figure out how in the world they could be happy again. Um, and so far, interestingly, like, well, a little bit about the study. It's, a, it's I believe, 85 years old now, uh, and it's a study that followed, uh, I don't know how many, I think it's several hundred men uh, it, that were at Harvard and around the Harvard area across all of their lives. And every year, they'd get, like, a survey, and then every five years, they'd have someone come interview them, and they just took the temperature on, on their lives, sort of generally, every so often, so that they could gather this wide body of longitudinal data across someone's life. Very interesting stuff. But one of the, uh, the interesting pieces of this book and, uh, is that it simply confirms what I already knew. As people made in the image of God, they don't say that, but there we go. As people made in the image of God, we were created to be in deep, meaningful relationships, not only with God, but with one another. In fact, the interesting part about this is that those who had deep, warm, meaningful relationships with other human beings were happier and lived longer than their more selfish and isolated counterparts. Interesting that God blesses us as we walk in his design. One of my favorite things about the book is the stories they tell about the the people across this 85-year history The stories about the unhappy people are cautionary tales as to what might happen if you find yourself drawing more and more into yourself and more away from others. But the stories about the exceptionally happy people are some of my favorites because they stand in direct contrast to the versions of supposed happiness that the world commonly sells, science proving what God has done. I love it. 
makes me happy. It's like we were generally meant to lead quiet lives, work with our hands, and mind our, mind our own affairs, right? Little First Thessalonians 4.11. It's like we're supposed to be relational, simple people, just loving one another in Christ. It's a good thing. But the stories about both kinds of people, happy and unhappy, show how these people's deeply held beliefs worked their way out into their lives. The authors of the book draw some pretty incredible conclusions from the bulk data of the study, but the individual stories are actually so much more impactful because you get an insight into how these people actually lived out what they believed. Those are examples that perhaps, if I wanted to, imitate. Given how the Corinthians were, uh, were living, they had either begun to believe that they could fill their heads with knowledge and never let it out into their actions, or they were imitating their so-called guide's behavior, which was in no way in harmony with the gospel. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't follow their guidance with their mouths. And if their lives aren't in accordance with the gospel, don't follow that either. No, look at my life, he says. I have shaped everything around my trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at my life and see the contrast. Follow me, he says. And he sent them Timothy as well to provide them, again, another example of Paul's way of life. And so as faithful stewards, Paul and Timothy not only taught the truth, important, don't get me wrong, teaching the truth, important, but they lived it too. A good, uh, good example of the difficulty of determining how then we should live sometimes. There's a passage in Ephesians 5.25 that says this, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. On one hand, I understand what this means. On one hand. I'm supposed to give my all for my wife. Simple, right? How many of you all say that's really simple to do on an everyday basis? Husbands, you want to raise your hands? Not a single one of you today is saying that's simple. <laughs> it's not. You know what's better? To look at someone else who seems like they're taking that to heart and doing it on a daily basis and go, man, maybe I should model my life after that. So much easier than trying to imagine what that might look like. For those of you who didn't grow up with faithful, God-fearing fathers, find those men in your life who are doing that and follow them as they follow Christ. Because look, practically speaking, I could conclude perhaps that I'd never watch what I want on TV. That means that Sunday afternoons, I don't get to watch my favorite corny sci-fi shows. It's what I do. Right? That's what I do on Sunday. Some of you are judging me. I watch sci-fi shows on Sunday afternoon. That's what I do, okay? Like, send me an email. It's one of, my, one of my favorite things. Does that mean that I give that up necessarily 100% of the time? Well, maybe. It depends. Again, having an example of what that might look like would be so much easier than just kind of throwing blanket rules at this and taking guesses. 
I'll be honest, we usually watch what she likes to watch. And then when she falls asleep, because the nap takes her, she never takes naps, but when the nap takes her, then I can switch on what I want to watch. But how does, how does Christian life play out? I think it's far simpler and potentially even less error-prone for me to find someone that looks a little bit like Jesus and to follow their example. It's, it's one thing, uh, as you all know, I, I play guitar, right? It's one thing to, to read a book about how to play guitar, isn't it? I could read books all day about how to play guitar. It's one thing to read a book, and it's another thing to have someone teach me, to see how it's done, for me to watch with my eyes, to hear with my ears, to get the sense of how it's done, to get the feel. I've said it a few times. Does this person's life taste, smell like Jesus? That's weird to say, but I hope you get what I'm saying. Is is the flavor there? And if so, then I'd say that's good fruit. Maybe somebody worth imitating. 1 Corinthians 4 18 through 21, the end of our passage here says this Some are arrogant. Some of these guides are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? In this final passage, Paul presents a final contrast between himself as a spiritual father and those supposed guides who arrogantly flew in the face of Paul's teaching. Now, I don't believe that across this passage, Paul is universally condemning these guides and tutors. I think as we look at the context here and we see from 1 Corinthians 3 that there are some who build with silver and gold, things that will not perish on the last day, that I don't think he's condemning universally all of these tutors. Sometimes a tutor is helpful, correct? But in this particular part of the passage, he kind of turns a corner. He says some of these tutors, so we're taking one group, we're paring it down a little bit. Some of these tutors are arrogant. That is, they are flying in the face of Paul's teaching, and they're daring him to come. They're saying, oh, he's not going to actually come and do anything that means anything at all. We're going to do what we want. We're going to mislead people. We're going to continue to spout off nonsense. He says, no, that's not what's going to happen. He begins to dismantle the idea that these arrogant teachers were worth following. The word translated arrogant here, I love this, uh, is, is super helpful in understanding the, the, the sense of the translated word in this context. So the, the, the more literal translation of that word arrogant, which happens twice here uh, in verse 18 uh, and 19 as well, is, is inflated. That's the better sense of the word. That's the more technical definition. So arrogant really is inflated. These inflated people. Some are, some are inflated as though I were not coming to you. And then he says, I will find out not the talk of these inflated people, but their power. I think this gives the clearest sense of the passage. 
Some of the tutors were thinking of themselves more highly than they should have. And if I had to guess, these were the very ones teaching the Corinthians that they should pursue worldly success, allowing the church to be divided and and accepting all kinds of public heinous sin. And these tutors, though, were nothing but talk. I love the, there was one commentary, and I'm, I'm going to just use it straight out. They, they said the, the best actual way to understand these people is windbags. They're full of hot air. They have the appearance of something with substance, but really they're filled with nothing. You know the, the puffer fish? You ever think of a puffer fish, right? So they're really small and kind of vulnerable, but when they're threatened, they puff up to make themselves seem bigger. It seems like there's something there, but there's not. In the same way, these people had become inflated in their own minds even. In fact, that same commentary not only said that the, the way to understand this is, is, is uh, windbags, or people full of hot air, but also uh, that there was a, a conflation between this idea of being inflated and the Hebrew word hebel. If you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the word also translated vanity. He's saying these people are vapor, is actually the more literal translation of that word. They're vapor. They're full of something that means little. There's no real substance to it. Again, I don't think he's saying that Perhaps some of their small words might be in some way helpful in some distant sort of way, but he's saying that there's no substance to it. And if you're following them, then you're being, you're being uh, sort of pointless with your time. But if you had followed Paul's teaching, if you had followed the course of his life, you'd be doing better. He says his intention is to find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. I love this because I think there's a, there's a tendency to read too much into this. Um, there are some who would say that this is like a sort of spiritual, miraculous final duel at the end of a fantasy movie sort of a thing, right? Like you've got the good guys on the one side, you've got the bad guys on the other side, and they're like, shooting miracles at one another somehow. Like, it, that's the way that some commentaries come across. I don't think that, that's what's going on here because Paul is contrasting two things. He's saying that one is all talk. It's just hot air. The other is power. It's substance. It's something that means something. He said, I'm going to come and see if they really mean something, if what they're saying has any substance to it, if they have any actual fruit of their ministries. Are they effectual in what they purport to do? I think that what he's saying here is the kingdom of God does not consist of mere meaningless talk, but of Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God, transforming people and causing them to walk in obedience. I think that's a good interpretation of this passage. I'm not discounting that there may have been miraculous things that happened in a potential, or that would have happened in a potential uh, confrontation here, but what I'm saying is that he's, he's really getting at the substance of what they're teaching. 
He's saying, let me look into not only their lives, but how the people who subscribe to their teaching are living their lives. I want to see their power. Are they operating in the spirit, or are they operating according to the flesh? The kingdom of God isn't about filling our heads then with knowledge and rational arguments. It's about living for Jesus as a new creature. As I close, I I believe that there are three core questions that we should ask ourselves today from this passage. First, are you leaning into the spiritual mothers and fathers that God has placed around you today? Are you keeping your eyes open, looking for those who might show you what it means to live according to God's word? Do you know who those people are? Are you asking them questions? Are you seeking to know them? It's really easy, I think, sometimes. It's easy to say, oh, well, this person obviously follows Jesus, and you can sort of venerate them from afar. But have you approached them and said, hey, I'd like to grab coffee and understand what it means in your everyday life to walk with Jesus in this area? Are you asking those questions? Because look, there's tons of people who will tell you what to do. And finding people in your life that you can imitate as they follow Christ will mean far, far, far more to your spiritual growth than just listening to the talking heads on media, even, even books. Second question I would have you ask is what kind of example are you setting for those around you? Does your life preach Christ? Do you smell like Jesus? I'm just going to keep on using that until you get comfortable with the idea. Have you, you ever spent some time with somebody who wears particularly strong perfume or cologne? Like, people can tell when you've been with them, right? Like, you go into a room. I did this the other day. This was at work, and a couple of guys in there before I went into that office that they had, like, they had a lot of cologne on, and I came out smelling like their cologne, like I had spent some time with them. It's the, that question. Are you spending time with Jesus? Do you know him? Do you lo- begin to look like him? Look, you might not perfectly imitate Christ in every way and every single day, but we should try. Do you, do you look like him? Do you smell like him? I don't know what it means to taste like him, but there you go. What's the general tenor, the, the tone, if you're, if you're a guitar guy like I am, like tone's a big deal. Like it's not just the notes, it's all the little stuff that goes into it. This is the tone of your life say Jesus? Does it say something else? Are you putting yourself in a position where you could provide spiritual parentship to others? Third thing I would have you ask is, is the cross the power of God for you? Do you live a life of power or of mere talk? If you prayed a prayer at one point and you think you're good to go and now you can do whatever you want, 
You've got it all wrong. All wrong. Those to whom the cross is the power of God are consistently transformed, reformed, and changed. The Holy Spirit operates in our hearts and we find ourselves motivated to look more like Jesus every day. If the cross is the power of God to you, then it shapes your life. There's no way that God can exercise power and something not happen, right? So if God is exercising power in your life, you must be changing. This isn't legalism. Somebody might pull the legalistic boogeyman card because I'm saying that you should be obedient, that you should look like Jesus in your everyday life. But I I think it's not legalism, it's Christianity. James tells us that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Is your faith working its way out into your life? If it's not, then the cross has no power in you. Repent and believe. Lay down the things of this world. Follow after him. If your faith is not transforming you, then you have no faith at all. Maybe, maybe this is the message we all need to hear today. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up. Is your life looking more and more like Jesus, or are you slipping? Is it looking more and more like Jesus? Are you smelling like Jesus more? Or are there people in your life who couldn't even tell that you're in any way different? And look, I know we all have our favorite Bible teachers and preachers and things like that. I'm going to give you a final warning here. I've given you a few so far. If your favorite teachers aren't leading you to Jesus and pushing you to look more like him every single day, run. Run. They're no good. You're wasting your time. Find those who will point you to Jesus, both those who are around you right here and right now and those who have come before us as that great cloud of witnesses. Seek out those who will point you to Jesus. And if we do that, if we do that, then we're going to be a church of of people who are constantly transformed, who are always growing in Christ. We're never going to be a perfect church, y'all. There's people in it. (laughs) You know what I mean. We're imperfect people. But we we should have a smell like Jesus. Because ultimately, we don't, have a dead God. We cannot have a dead faith. Don't be deceived by the teachers of this world who would lead you to believe otherwise, that you could just believe in your heart and never let it out into your actions. Just trust Jesus. Follow him and watch him transform your life and the lives of others around you. Because look, when you start walking with Jesus, people are going to see it. And I hope that even 
even some people today would start approaching one another and say, hey, I want to understand more and more from you what it means to walk with Jesus in this area of your life. I think you're a faithful husband, a faithful wife. I think that you're a good mother, a good father that points his kids to Jesus. I think that you're, you work heartily as unto the Lord. I want to understand how you deal with a boss that's a terror. How do you deal with that in your everyday life? I want, I want to know. I'm hoping that, that those conversations will happen. Seek out those who are walking with Jesus and ask questions. Let them become spiritual parents to you in some way. Lean on them and watch Christ transform your life. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.